interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Eric, thank you for joining me here today. I, What I do for every guest, I go through a bunch of podcasts they've been on a bunch of their material, your own podcast, of course. And I find myself more excited for this conversation than normal. And I think that's because I feel a deep sense of connection to your journey, what you've been on, and your mission, and and just how you come across. Like just a real authentic seeker of the world trying to explore more and learn more. And so that made me really excited to talk to you today. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Danny. That's a gracious welcome. Well, I'd love to start with how you typically end your meetings with a spiritual advisor of yours, which is on the topic of trust. Why mm. is that a topic that you and your spiritual advisor come back to and end conversations with often? It's a good question. I assume because it's where I have work to do. I mean, that's, that's the, I would assume that's the, it's not intentional. It's certainly not like we decide we're going to talk about trust. It just seems like every conversation we get into, you know, I think we're talking about X and we wander our way around. And the next thing I know, we're back to trust. I'm like, "Ah, here we go again. (laughs) So I assume it's because it's something that, that, that I need to, I need to work on. And, And I think it comes down to, um, yeah, I think it comes down to what can we trust in when we're at the end of our own limits or ability. So I have a pretty high level of confidence in my abilities. I mean, I, and I don't mean that arrogantly. I just have been around for 50 years and have done a bunch of things, and I just feel fairly confident. Like, okay, I can handle the things that life brings my way. And yet we all get up against a limit. You know, we all get up at a point where it's like, well, I'm at the end of my rope, whatever that means. Where, okay, so what can I trust in? What, where can I turn? And I think that's what it, what it comes down to. And I think as I go deeper into questions about meaning and life and all that, you, that's where I seem to end up. On that topic, why do you think you've been attracted to questions around meaning and life in general? I, some of it, I think, I don't, comes naturally. It just seems to be my temperament to ask those kind of things. Um, I think some of it is uh, a, a relatively early on um, seeing through sort of the facade of the world. I don't know how else to say it, sort of seeing that everything that we tended to pursue and that we chased after didn't seem important. Um, or didn't seem like it led to meaningful happiness. Um, and then my, uh, you know, my descent into addiction led me into uh, recovery at 24 in a 12-step program. And 12-step programs are, uh, you know, they describe themselves as being spiritual programs, right? They're about, 
And now that could mean lots of different things, but that's ultimately what spirituality means to me. It's a, it's a question about what matters, like what's really important. So I think a combination of a natural uh, interest in those things and natural turning towards the deeper side, I don't know, I can't say why, um, and then uh, I think being forced into it by necessity. And so one of the things that I discovered when looking at your story was that when you went into that place of recovery from addictions, you became disillusioned with the idea of God, of the the normal God, the way it was described. And I was so curious to ask, why? Why were you disillusioned? Yeah, so I... um you know, what you're referring to is I got sober at 24. I was a homeless heroin addict. Um, my, you know, I basically burnt my life down and I got sober in, uh, 12 step programs in central Ohio in 1994. And so, you know, in 12 step programs, the third step, there's a line, you know, we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Right. And so that line, as we understood him is really important, although there's still the hymn in it, which sort of points you towards like, okay, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a God up in the sky. But in Ohio, in those days, that's what people were talking about. And I just went, I'll accept whatever they have, because I'll do anything. I've got to get sober, or I'm going to die, or I'm going to go to jail for a long time. So I did it. And it worked. And I got sober. But it was sort of like, I was, I was believing by kind of gritting my teeth. Um, And it's ultimately because when I look at the evidence of the world, I can't make a coherent answer out of there being a God uh, up there, out there somewhere that's arranging human affairs in such a way, and that I could actually ask that uh, God to to help me. Um, Because I just saw things that I couldn't square. So I would be like, well, you know, in AA, we'd say, people would say all the time, well, I'm sober by the grace of God. And I go, okay, that's interesting. But Bob died last week. So was, did, did God not like Bob? But God likes me, but not Bob. And so those sort of questions, you just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't ever, I couldn't ever square them. And so every answer that I would hear as a response to that, I would go, eh, that doesn't, I just, it, it doesn't work for me. Now, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I have no idea. It's a great mystery. I don't know how the, any of this works, right? But but we can only go with what, what feels real to us. And the idea of an interventionist God in that way raised too many questions that I just couldn't square enough to really get 100% behind. I couldn't trust in it. Let's put it that way. I mean, back to that idea of trust. I was like, I don't know what, how do I trust this? What am I trusting? I don't, you know, so I think that's where it kind of broke down for me. And so, the the what happened was I stayed sober off that sort of what I'll call sort of forced belief. And I don't mean anybody forced me. I forced me to believe a certain way. But when things in my life happened and my life sort of fell apart in a couple of ways, then I really needed a, a deeper source of support. And when I turned towards my understanding of spirituality, I went, oh, it's not really built on a firm foundation you know, for me. Yeah. When did you start to explore deeper the question of God and and the question of your own spirituality? I think I probably did it 
in earnest, you know, when I got sober at, at, at 24. Um, although I had been into um, Zen Buddhism a little bit in high school, I'd had a teacher who gave me some books and I was sort of intrigued, but I don't think I even really understood what I was reading. And, um, but I, I had, I had, um, there was a book called the Tao Te Ching that I had absolutely loved. I read it, you know, uh, late teens all the way through. So I, I always had some sort of interest. I dated a girl in high school who was very religious. Um, like the, the kind of Christian that, that you look at and you're like, okay, if that's what it means to be Christian, I think I want, I think I might want to sign up with you. Right. Like, like that really beautiful, like just love flowing through and out of them kind of person. Um, so I think I was also a lot having to ask the question of, do I believe in God during those times? Because I loved her. And um, and ultimately, we hit a point where I was like, uh, I love you, but you think I'm going to hell. This is problematic, right? Like this is, you know, we're both in an uncomfortable situation here, right? Like you, I think you love me. And um, I think you think I'm a great, I'm a good person. But according to your theological beliefs, I am based on what I believe I'm destined for hell. And I think that's kind of hard to build a relationship around. How, what made her specifically full of love and made you want to almost sign up for Christianity? What about her in particular? Um, I think she had just a, a, a warm, positive energy. Now, again, how much of that is natural to her and how much of that came from her faith, you never know, right? But, um, and she just, yeah, she was full of love. Like she was full of love for other people. Like she just genuinely really cared about people and was really um, just devoted herself to to helping uh, other people and serving other people. And so, and, you know, from her lens, that was because of her, you know, her love for God and, and from God's grace. That was her perspective on why she was that way. You've said before that, self-love is the prevention and treatment for depression. And when I heard you say that, I was like, whoa, I've never really thought about it like that before. Self-love is the prevention and treatment for depression. What made you say that? <laughs> well, I don't remember saying it. So, um, but it, it, it's not, I mean, I'm not surprised I said it. It, it, it aligns with what, what I, what I believe, but you talk, you, you'll find this, you're, you're a few episodes, you know, a good number of episodes in, but after a certain while and you get interviewed 50, 60, 70 times, you'll be like, well, I've said nearly all kinds of crazy stuff. However, um, why do I think that self-love is important in, in dealing with depression? Um, I mean, the biggest thing is that we spend more time with ourselves locked in our own brain than we do anyone else. You know, even often when we're with other people, particularly if we're depressed, we're still locked in our own brain, you know? And so having that be a hospitable place to live is, is pretty important. Um, I think the other reason is that... Um, a lack of self-love or self-loathing um, has a tendency to drive us um, into further into shame 
and further into despair. And none of those ways of interacting with the world allow us to do what we most need to do to heal anything, I think, which is to learn. So if I am just like, let's say I make a mistake and I'm just all wrapped up in, I'm such a, I'm a, I'm a loser. I'm awful. I'm all, whatever my, whatever your brand of self-loathing is, if that's what's happening, what is not happening is, huh, I wonder why I did that. Oh, what was going on in that situation that made it so that like, you know, sometimes I'm able to, to like, you know, act one, one way, but what was it about this situation that caused me to act in that way I don't feel good about? What could I have done differently? What, I mean, so that's what we need to learn, you know, we, learning. And, and, and when we are not in self-compassion, self-love, we're not in a learning mode. Self-compassion, self-love frees us up enough and opens us up enough, I think, that we're able to actually learn, which is how we change. What are other practices we can do to increase self-love? One thing that I like to do is I write, I love myself a hundred times every day. And since doing that, you, I feel more joy and openness come into mm. my life. And I'm like, why is that happening exactly? You know, I, I, I really try to figure out what's going on there. But I'm curious for you, what are ways we can practice more self-love? This is a this is a trickier thing to 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 do in you know how how do I actually do it? So I mean I think there's a variety of different approaches and techniques. So I got again I got sober at 24 and it was a pretty life-changing experience for me in many ways and I did it in a 12-step program and there are some ways in 12-step programs the actual 12 steps that's why they're called that they're these things that you do and there were a couple in there that were really important one was um, you sort of do this searching, they call it a searching and fearless moral inventory. Those are very heavily weighted terms. We might just say, I look at all the ways that I have, you know, harmed other people. I look at the patterns that get in my way. I look at my fears. I look at who I'm angry with. I, I just really get an understanding of what's going on in this interior landscape. And then we turn around and we do something called a fifth step. And the fifth step is you share that with someone else. And that's a really beautiful moment for a lot of people because you go in there with this like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to tell somebody all these awful things. And you tell them and, and, and they're just like, yeah, me too. You know, and then I did, I had lots of people over the years to give, tell me their force to, you know, do their fifth step with me. And the same thing. I just keep hearing this over and over and be like, oh yeah, you too, me too. So you do that a little while. And for me, it had a healing effect. You know, there was a healing effect about being able to talk about the things inside me that felt ugly or dirty or bad and hear other people reflect them back and go, Oh, okay. I'm not that different. You know, then we go on and we have a couple steps called, um, 
they're, they're, they're called the amend steps. I make a list of people I've harmed and I go out and I try and make things right with them. So I go out and I sort of clean up the, 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 it, where, where it's reasonable or doable. I clean up some of the messes I've made in my life and I get back to sort of, you know, a clean slate and that helps with self-love, I think. So I think some of it is an outside, some of it's an inside job. Some of it's an outside job. Um, you know, one way to feel better about ourselves broadly speaking is to is to live in a way that we feel good about so it's hard to cultivate a lot of self-love if you continue to live in you know ways that you you really feel bad about right you're and and so now this is a bit of a you get a bit of a chicken and egg with all this stuff right like some self-love helps you to actually stop doing some of these behaviors um you know years of therapy um I've done a lot of meditation and some of the meditation has been what we call meta meditation, which is, um, you know, loving kindness and you direct some of that loving kindness towards yourself. Um, so I think there's a variety of different ways to try and cultivate this, but, um, I, I would say broadly speaking, the one that feels most has felt most important to me is really recognizing that like my insides are very similar to lots and lots of other people's insides. I'm not uniquely broken or bad or weird or any of that stuff. Why do you think we get into that thought pattern? It's so common and I've experienced that thought pattern as well of like, I am... I shouldn't be this way. I'm this way and I really dislike myself for mm-hmm. being this way. What why does that thought pattern even occur? I think because we are um we are wired up as as humans to present the best parts of ourselves to the outside world. So we just for most of us we've never had anybody model saying like, you know, I'm, I, I really feel, you know, I'm this way or I'm that way or um, really talk about what's going on inside. So there's a lot of um, just putting on a brave face for the world that goes on. And so um, and we also th- I, I also think we don't see people that we would look at and, and go, oh, there there's a successful person and realize like, oh, yeah, they've got those same things going on. Um, I think that's probably the biggest reason. Um I think it's the biggest reason. And I think when we live uh, out of alignment with our, our values, or, or to, if we want to say that in a way that sounds differently, when we live out of alignment with what's important to us, that just really feels bad. And so if, you're, if we're doing that, we are going to have some of this stuff going on internally that isn't, doesn't feel right. Hmm. Do you think that issue has gotten worse as social media has risen up and people are presenting a version of themselves that's maybe the best version of themselves, but it might be different than the actual version? Do you think social media has played any role in increasing the divide between what we present and and what we are feeling, thus making us feel more upset? Probably. But it certainly is, it, it, you know, it is not a new phenomenon, right? People have been right. comparing themselves unfavorably to other people for as long as we've been people. I mean, way before social media, we had a phrase uh, in AA, we used to say, don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. So we were talking about that very same phenomenon, right? Like, I yeah. feel like yuck inside, but I'm comparing myself to your completely put together outside. 
you know? And so um, I do think social media uh, has the capacity to make it worse for sure. Um, I think it just gives us more and more and more opportunities for comparison, but magazines and TV, you know, certainly, you know, you, you had it then too, right. You know, I, I, I could have it growing up. I could turn on the TV and see, you know, the perfectly built, you know, male model and be like, well, I don't look like that, you know? And so yeah. there it starts. Right. But, but yeah, I think it's, it's exacerbated it. Yeah. That makes sense. I want to talk about your, uh, maybe high school years where you founded a nonprofit for disadvantaged children. What exactly was going through your mind when you were doing <laughs> Um, so, It started with, for whatever reason, I went to a soup kitchen. I have no idea how I ended up volunteering in a soup kitchen. I don't know how it happened, but I did. There I was. And I saw these kids. And um, I don't know if it was through a conversation with them or what it was, but I got the sense, I was like, I I just got the sense that many of them, I, I don't think had ever left the neighborhood they were in. Like, I realized like these kids, I don't even think these kids have seen the zoo, right? I grew up in, you know, a relatively privileged suburban life. Like going to the zoo, you just went, it was like, of course you would go to the zoo. Your parents take you to the zoo. But I realized these kids didn't have some of those very basic experiences. So how are they going to imagine their way out of the life they were in if they hadn't seen it? And again, now we have more social media and internet and you can see lots of different things, but, but this is, you know, 19 late eighties. Right. So, I mean, yeah, they could see TV, but that was it. Otherwise you, you don't see anything except your neighborhood. And so it started by, I just simply wanted to take a bunch of kids to the zoo, but I quickly realized, um, a teacher, you know, a teacher used to tell the story and joke that I would, be, you know, I was calling these places up and be like, where can I get my hands on some kids to take them to the zoo? And people were like, there's no way, you know, so obviously nobody was going to turn their kids uh, over to a bunch of people they didn't know to take them to the zoo. So I, we scrapped that and we thought, well, what if we just went down to this community organization there was a church that had a community organization and what if we just tutored some of these kids you know what if we just went okay you know we're high school uh kids getting a relatively good education at a at a, at a decent high school what if we just went and took early elementary school kids who were you know getting probably very bad educations um and just try to tutor them and give them a little love. And so we did it. We just started it with a couple of us and we went, wow, this really seems to work. Like it's really helping these other, it's really helping the kids there. And equally it's, it's really good for us. Like it's a, and so from there, I think then, uh, whatever the entrepreneurial part of me came alive and went, well, if it's good at two, it'd be better at eight and, you know, 16 and let's start a scholarship. And so, you know, the whole thing kind of just, you know, got going, but I learned a really important lesson there that, that, you know, I, I, I realized again later, which is that I do best when I'm engaged in things that are trying to help other people. And I'm a little less focused on me. Like I just work well. I think, I think most humans do. Um, but it, it's a particularly useful, uh, mode for me to work in. Yeah. I was thinking, 
it's very difficult for me to imagine that this person who just wants to help kids in disadvantaged communities experience more to life and bring them an imagination is going to turn into a heroin <laughs> addict at 23 or 24. Like those two people seem so far removed. And so could you bridge the gap between how somebody with such a service oriented mind becomes somebody addicted to a substance that could end up putting them on the brink of death? Yeah. Well, um, I think the the connection is there. I, I can see the connection. And the connection is um, that service work I was doing, um, again, really helped me. And what I mean by that is um, it was a way of dealing with underlying depression and, and, and other issues. I was a troubled kid. I mean, I was a trouble. I was in trouble all the time. And high school was no different, right? And I was about to be expelled from high school and I got sent last chance to this alternative program. And that's where all this happened. So, um, but, so, but in that time, I saw what alcohol and drugs did to those kids. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not touching it. Right. I could just see what it was doing to their lives. And so I became kind of straight edge. And, um, did that until I went away for after I um, graduated from high school, I went away for a summer and I came back and my girlfriend was dating my best friend and I just kind of fell apart, you know, and one night somebody said to me here, why don't you have a drink? And I just was in the I don't care mindset, right? Like F it, right? And so I took the drink and it was all of a sudden like, oh, I feel 100% better. And I mean, I was rarely sober from that moment till 24, you know, I was just kind of, so I, it was off to the races for me. So um, I actually remember being pretty early into my drinking and going and, and being in the car very near where we used to tutor those kids and drinking in the car. And it still kind of chokes me up to this day and realizing that like, I was giving that, I mean, I, I gave that up. I walked away from it to pursue, you know, drinking. And so, um, you know, I think it was, I think I was, I had a lot of, uh, underlying, uh, wounds that the, the tutoring program that I was doing temporarily helped me see like, here's actually how you fix this. Right. And then I, you know, in, then I was presented another uh, what felt like a cure for it. And that's the one I went with for a while. Fascinating. You know, one of the things you often wonder about is why did it work for you where there were mm -hmm. people in the same situation who went through AA and it didn't work for them? And you described it as a, a mystery and like one of the mysteries that you really try to solve. Do you have any insight here sitting today of why it actually worked and why some treatments actually work for people when the other people will do the same exact thing and it won't work for them? I know some things that make a difference, but there are still deep, deep mysteries. Um, you know, one I think has to do with the level of support people have um it was obvious to me even going through treatment that you know i went to this halfway house it was kind of a six-month halfway house for kind of people who were like considered you know really you know difficult 
cases, right? They, they always send you to six month halfway house if they're like, this guy doesn't have much chance. Um, but a lot of the people, a lot of the people in that program, I could look at and I could see the advantages I had from my upbringing. And from, I mean, you know, we talk about white privilege sometimes lately, right? Well, I, I lived it, right? I mean, I probably, had I not been a, a, a white kid from the suburbs, probably would have gone to jail for a long time instead of potentially going to jail and being given an opportunity. You know, I was given an opportunity to um, divert that. You know, so I went to court, I pled guilty, and they said, you know, if you meet all these criteria, we will wipe this away for you. Um, Now, I had to meet all the criteria, and if I didn't, I was sentenced and was going to, you know, so it wasn't like a free pass. But it was something that I think a lot of people would not have been given, you know. Um, And so even while I was in treatment, in the halfway house, I could look and be like, I'm going to leave here. And now that I'm sober, my family will take me back. And so I will go stay in a house where there's not drug, drug addicts. Right. And given that I'm a white, some, I mean, good high school education, I'll be able to go find a job, you know? So I think underlying social support is important. That said, I know people who had those same social supports that I had. And they didn't get sober. And those are the ones that I just don't, I don't understand. I don't know why. Did they have more trauma in their past? Potentially, were they more damaged than I was? I really just don't know. It really is a mystery. And if you could answer the mystery, you would, um, you know, I think you'd be a billionaire. If you could solve the problem, if you could actually (laughs) reliably solve the problem of addiction, you would be, you would be as rich as Elon Musk, probably. What could we do to better understand it? Is it like go to every person who had a similar situation and interview them and like ask them questions? Like what could we actually do to help those people or like understand better Hmm. those people so that we can better tackle it? That's a really great question that nobody has ever asked me. And I honestly don't know that I have... um, I have thought about, but that is a deeply insightful question. Off the top of my head, the place we would start is we would stop, we would stop spending countless billions of dollars trying to stop drugs from coming into the country, which is a futile enterprise. It just doesn't work. It has never worked. And we would take that money and maybe do what you're saying, which is uh, Turn it towards treatment, turn it towards research, turn it towards, you know, learning about what is it, what are some of the underlying mechanisms. I think addiction is extraordinarily complex um, because it there are so many there are so many things that go into it. You know, you've you've got so many, you've got, you know, who knows how many genetic factors. You've got lots of environmental factors about, you know, how you were raised, your childhood. You know, we do know that difficult childhoods lead at a much higher rate to, to addiction. It's just the data is unambiguously clear. So, um, but what that what we you know what we we don't fully know is well 
not everybody who has very difficult and traumatic childhoods goes on to become an addict, you know, so it's not like everybody does. And so wh why do some do and some don't? And why do some people who appear to have, you know, much, you know, less difficult children, childhoods go on to have addiction? I mean, I have things in my childhood that were difficult, right? But if, you know, there's something called the uh, adverse childhood experience test, you could take it, right? And I had a guy on my show the other day, uh, trauma survivor. I mean, he scored like a 10 out of 10. And if you could go to 20, he would have gotten a 20 out of 20. Like, it's the sort of stories that would make any of us just cringe. Like, how does somebody live through that, right? Like, I got nothing to that extent. Now, I'm not minimizing the fact that what happened to me in the way I was raised didn't work for me. Uh, you know, obviously it had an impact, but I might be like a four on that scale. So, so, you know, I, so I think there's, there's those factors. There's, you know, um, there's the social factors. There's, I, I, so there's so many factors. I don't know if we ever fully puzzle it out. I don't know. I'd say, you know, it's like cancer. We're trying to figure it out and we're like, you know, we're, we're, we know some of the things that cause it some of the time. Like, yeah, smoking's a bad idea. You smoke, you might, you've got a higher likelihood of getting cancer, right? But we know lots of people who smoke who don't get cancer. We know lots of people who get cancer who don't smoke. And so, you know, I think addiction is similar, you know? So when you get into something that has so many variables in it, it's a, it's a harder thing to solve. But back to your original very good question, I mean, I would love to see us spend the money that we're spending on treating addiction um, and researching it versus trying to prevent it, which... Um, broadly speaking, doesn't work uh, by trying to prevent drugs coming in because we people who want to get high will find a way to get high. Yeah, well, I totally agree with you on the macro sense, but I'm curious in the micro sense, you're a behavior coach and you work with people one-on-one. -on -one. What separates the people who get the desired result from working with you versus the ones who don't? Mm. Um, that I can... Uh, well... I can answer on one level and then you go one level deeper and you're like, well, okay, well, why that? And I'll go, I don't know. So what I do know is that people who, I, I work with people longer term. So I broadly speaking, don't work with people for like three sessions or four sessions, right? I try and, you know, I'm more like a, a 15 session kind of guy um, because change just takes time. That, that's not hard and fast rule. There are people I work with for short, shorter engagements, but if you're trying to make a big change, it, it takes time. And so what I will say is that the people who keep showing up to sessions and keep emailing me, even when they're failing, have a pretty good chance of figuring it out. However, what most people do is they get discouraged and they get embarrassed. And so they, they hide. It's natural, right? It's like, you know, when you've done your homework, you sit in the front row and you're like, hey, teach, what's up, right? And when you haven't done your homework, you're slouched and hidden in the back row, right? So what happens even with somebody when they hire me to be a coach and as many times as I say in as many ways as I can say it, I am on your team 100%. When you're doing good, when you're doing bad, doesn't matter. Always on your team. Those people will still have that desire to, uh, the shame will cause them to hide. And back to my point earlier about learning, 
right? If we're trying to change a behavior and we're not being successful at it, we have to be learning. And if you're hiding in shame and you're not showing up to sessions and you're not emailing and you're not doing the, the, the things to, to investigate, then we're not learning, you know? Whereas if you keep, where people keep showing up, we just keep going, well, why? What is it? What's, okay, that didn't work. Let's try this. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. Um, and usually if somebody does that, we can find our way through. Now, there are some people that, um, and I try to screen this out before I work with somebody. I would say there are people who the level of help they need is way beyond like a, 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 a personal transformation coach, right? Like they're damaged well beyond that. And I'm not the right fit for them. Sometimes I might end up with someone like that who I think I can help. And then I get a little bit into it and I'm like, you know, maybe I, you know, so, so there's some of that, but assuming I screened them correctly, which I'm generally pretty good at and assuming they keep showing up, we're pretty good at achieving results. What you were just talking about reminded me of Sarah Blakely's uh, father. So you were talking about how when we fail or we're, we don't do our homework, we get upset and we don't want to show up again. But Sarah Blakely's father made her every day at the dinner table talk about a failure that she had been through that mm. day. Yeah. And when that occurred, it made failing cool and failing something that <laughs> you actually want to do. And if you can get in love or at least become one with the failure and, and be happier with it and be proud of it, then you can better show up and better stay consistent. Yeah, that's a great practice. And yeah, it really is. A, it is a recognition like, okay, failing happens. It's it's natural, it's normal, it occurs, and it's an opportunity to learn, you know, so when we can reframe it that way, we're able to show up with less change. But boy, most of us, particularly, um, well, a lot of times, by the time somebody's going to hire a behavior coach, they've failed at the thing they're trying to change so many times. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out, I'm gonna really work out. And I've said that now 50 times. I don't believe myself. I don't trust myself. And my level of shame around not doing it is really high. So how do you get someone? Sorry to cut you off. How do you get somebody who's in that place of, I don't, I've tried this 50 times and now hiring you. What do you do differently to get them to change? Well, I mean, what we do differently to get them to change is we, we, we look at what, how do people change? Why do people change? What goes wrong when we change, right? There, is, there are things we know about behavior change um, that, that have been studied that we know work more often. Again, nothing works 100%, but they work more often. And so I, we constantly reorient towards learning, growth, and um, not personal failing. So one simple way to say it would be we're just constantly orienting towards that idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, right? A growth mindset says I can change, I can grow, I can be different. A fixed mindset says I'm the way I am and I'll always be that way. And it, when I feel that way, then I'm ashamed. Mm. So we're constantly reorienting towards, okay, yes, you've been that way. Yes, that's how you've behaved, but that's not who you are and you can change. You have the ability to change and we have to keep redirecting. Now, some people, for whatever reason, are able to hear and embrace that message and they keep showing up and they keep, they keep coming, you know, and others don't. It's, 
you know, in AA, one of the things we used to say all the time, and I didn't, I didn't get the, I didn't realize how profound it was till later, but we used to say this every meeting, keep coming back, you know, keep coming back. And now I don't, now for me, you know, we meant keep coming back to AA and I would say, well, you know, don't, don't keep coming back to the same thing over and over and over and over again if it's not working for you. So maybe AA isn't the thing, but keep trying, you know, if you've, if you've got depression and it's still, you haven't made any, you're not getting anywhere with it. Keep trying. Try the next medicine that your doctor recommends. Try the, you know, like try, you know, keep trying. Um, because I do think, you know, I do think we're capable of, of change, sometimes tremendous change, sometimes less so. And I don't, I don't fully know why some people can change much more than others, but um, I think most of us can make some changes for the better. Hmm. Well, one thing that's really helped me with what you're talking about, the separation of believing that you are the situation that occurred mm-hmm. versus seeing it go through is, is the practice you talk about a lot, which is meditation, mm-hmm. where when after I started doing it, I started to realize that the thoughts were coming and going mm-hmm. and that they didn't actually represent me in any given yeah. moment. And that was a profound insight because now all of a sudden... I can have a thought that I don't like, but I don't have to attach myself to it. And so I guess yeah. talk a little bit about that. Like, like, do you find that clients who practice meditation on a regular basis are better suited to changing and better suited to having a growth mindset? Or do you think it's irrelevant? I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it's a a very useful practice. That said, I'm not. I don't think it's necessarily a useful practice for everyone all the time. Um, You had uh, an insight from it that is that that I think is is a liberating insight, which is we can look at it and go, "Oh, look, these thoughts keep coming. I'm 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 clearly not trying to think them," you know. I'm clearly not in charge of them, you know, so, so that can be liberating for some people. That's not liberating. It's terrifying. (laughs) Right. Well, why, why is that liberating for me and terrifying for somebody else? We ought to go get my partner from the other room who's reading a book on trauma-informed mindfulness. She might be able to better answer this question. But I do think some of it is, you know, what is your your underlying state of mind? I'll give, I'll give you an example. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Johan Hari. He's written a couple books, but his most recent book is, uh, I think it's called Stolen Attention. Um, it's about how we can't focus. And, and he talks about the societal and big-scale reasons why we can't. But he references something that I've come across over and over and over again. And he talks about the default mode network. And so if you read enough of these books, you'll start to hear about the default mode network. I mean, it's like neuroplasticity. You can't read a a damn book on self-help these days or psychology or spirituality without neuroplasticity. Like we ought to create a bingo game out of these things, right? (laughs) Neuroplasticity would be the number one hit. But default mode network is up there. And so Depending on the book you're reading, you're going you're gonna to read one of two things. If it's a meditation book on mindfulness, it's going to probably say, hey, meditation mindfulness calms down the default mode network. Mm. This is a good thing. 
you know, default mode network is where we obsess over self and we ruminate and we want to turn it down. If you're reading a book on creativity, you're almost certainly going to have somebody say, mind wandering is good. Mind wandering is what the default mode network does. You want to allow the default mode network to run wild and you go, all right, well, do I want it? Do I not want it? Right? Johan Hari, in his classic way, the guy is, is really good, said, he, he just put it all together. He said, you know, if you're in a psychologically good place, the default mode network is your friend. You can let your mind kind of wander around and it's going to make creative possibilities and it's going to find good things and great, let it go. If on the other hand, you are not so, not in such a good place, it can really be uh, a bad place to be. And so I think there's something similar happening with mindfulness. And I, I can't say why some people find it uh, more, more calming and uh, insightful and some people find it more frustrating and troubling. I do know that there are ways to approach meditation that make it more likely we'll have the experience you're describing versus the other. You know, there's certainly things we can do to approach our meditation practice in, in a different way. And there are lots of different ways to meditate. And so sometimes we have to try different methods till we find something that, that works for us. Um, but some people, you know, I've got a friend right now. He's, he's at a, he's been having a very difficult time, um, a lot of anxiety. I think the pandemic really just freaked him out badly. He's just, he's had a lot of strain and struggle. It's been a rough few years for him. We're looking at like, okay, well, where can he go get a reset? You know, when I want to go get a reset, I go do a silent week-long meditation retreat. I think sending him on a silent week-long meditation retreat would be a disaster. The last thing that guy needs is more time stuck in his own head. Yeah. It's just not the, it's not the time for it for him, right? So, so um, there may be another time in life where that is more what, what would make sense for him. So I think, you know, um, yeah, that's my sort of meandering, incomplete answer. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the, the ways or times when meditation or maybe the a retreat has served you is when you felt a sense of interconnectedness. And I think it was an Omega retreat with Adyashanti mm -hmm. where you, you, felt, you said you felt a feeling of ecstasy and, and oneness that you had previously never experienced. Mm -hmm. Could you break that down for me in layman's terms? Like, what does that mean exactly? How did that experience transform your rest of your life after mm -hmm. having it? Well, let me try and let me try and avoid terms that people who who haven't read a bunch of mystic writing would would understand. Um, I, and I don't mean that like uh, lots of people just simply haven't read that kind of stuff. I tend to default to those terms because I'm often talking to those kind of people. Um, the only way I can say it is it was a moment in which I had the very felt experience that I was not separate from the things that were around me. So, um, I, and, and, and one of the, one of the things about what we would call a mystical experience, which this is, um, 
is that they're very difficult to describe in words. So anybody who's listening to your show who's taken psychedelics at high enough doses has probably had an experience that was profound in some way that when they turn around to tell it to somebody, it sounds idiotic. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> dude, you were just high, right? But, but not necessarily, right? Those experiences can be profound, but we can't put them into words. So that's, the mystical experiences are always that way. But I felt very clearly that I was not separate from the things around me. Now, I don't mean that I thought I was the tree over there. I knew I was not the tree. And yet, in the same moment, I also didn't feel separate from the tree. The, the, the best way I could, the analogy I could think to make is, you know, if you think about like, if you think about like a cell in your body, from one perspective, assume that cell could, could take on consciousness. It could go, I am a single cell out here taking on the world and I got to hang as a single cell. And we would look at that and go, that's a perfectly valid perspective. You're right. But if we hop up one level, we might go, oh, well, actually that cell is part of this organ. So it's actually, you know, it's deeply connected with everything else. And from the perspective of the organ, that one cell isn't that big a deal, right? It's like, okay, it's a cell. It's important. It's got to be there. But, you know, okay, we go up to the human level and we're like, well, you know, a kidney, it's important. I don't want to lose it, but, but I could, you know. And so depending on the, the viewpoint at which you take things, right? If you were to suddenly assume like a God's eye view and you were to look at all of human history, you would look at me and go, well, yeah, okay. You know, like Eric's, Eric's part of it. Yep. But you know, he's, he's, he's not the center of the universe. Like he thinks he is <laughs> right. It was as if I had assumed that view in a way. Now I don't mean it was like I was up above things looking down on them. I just simply saw that the tree and I felt equally important and connected. Um, everything around me and, and the great, the biggest thing that happened was the weight of identity of, of feeling like Eric Zimmer had to present himself a certain way to the world just vanished. Wow. And I no longer, and, and so it was just this deep, deep sense of freedom. That's the only way I can describe it. I felt like, you know, years and years of stress were just like vanished. And I felt, um, I think the other thing that happened is I looked at everything in my life that was difficult. Cause I was like, what is, you know, like how real is what's happening? You know? And I would look at things in my life and I'd be like, that were difficult. And I'm like, well, no big deal. Huh. Like, you know, so, um, like what? Well, at the time I was hoping I, you know, I did the podcast for four years, four and a half years while I held a full-time job. And around that time I was getting to the point where I was like, I think in the next year or two, I might be able to jump and do the podcast and the coaching full-time, which I really, really wanted, right? It's hard to hold a full-time job and, you know, like, you know, it, maybe you're doing it. Maybe you're familiar. I don't know. I don't know your back, your, your backstory, but, but that was mine. And so that was really, really important to me. And in that moment, I just went, I guess if I just have to keep working this job the rest of my life, like it just didn't feel like a big deal. It just felt like, yeah, okay, doable, you know, fine. Um, but, but beyond that, and again, so words aren't really doing it, it justice, but um, it was just a deep sense of 
interconnection and lack of separation from everything else. Everything just felt like it was okay. 100% deeply, deeply okay. And how did that inform the rest of what happened thereafter? How were you able to use that experience, if at all, and, and be able to come back to that experience yeah. if needed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what's typical of people who have experiences like that is that we just want more of them, you know? And, and I am, I'm wired up that way, right? Like, I'm a drug addict. Like, you know, like, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I followed feeling good to, to, to the, the edge of the line. So there's some of that naturally there. Um, luckily, uh, the gentleman you referenced who I was on retreat with, Adi Ashanti, is somebody that we've got to interview several times and I've gotten to, to know him a little bit and I was able to sort of, you know, turn to him for, for some counsel. And so it became very clear that chasing that experience wasn't going to work. Hmm. Um, but a couple things happened. I mean, I did, it's not, I did, I, you know, that, ex, the, the, ex, the extreme feeling of that experience faded. Um, but there were some things that have remained um, very much the same. I think my my sense of personal identity um, has never come back to the same way. Like, I just don't care as much what anybody thinks, and I don't feel a need to present myself in any certain way. And I was, a, I was somebody who was very focused on that. You know, I was very conscious wow. of that stuff. Um, so I'm not saying it's gone but it's dramatically and, and uh, I'm hoping permanently reduced, um, which is a great weight off my shoulders, right? I mean, it's a great weight off my shoulders to not walk into a room and be like, is everybody looking at me? What are they thinking of me? What are they, you know, like just not have that so much. Um, I think more profoundly, you know, what Adi Ashanti said to me was devote yourself to whatever remains of that experience. And so for me, that's been really powerful because I've gone, okay, do I think that the view I saw of the world in, that, in, in those days was real? And I do actually think it was real. I don't think it's more real than necessarily normal consciousness, but I, I don't think it was, I do think it was real, you know? I think it was another way of viewing reality. And so from that way of viewing reality, a, a, a way of reality that says there's deep interconnection between all things, how would somebody who believes that to be true act? Even if they don't feel it in the moment, how would they act? And, and that's a, always been a pretty important part of my personal philosophy is, you know, I try not to let my moods or my current experience drive my actions. You know, um, I try and let my actions come from some, some more thoughtful idea of what I think is important in life, you know? And so, so for me, that's been part of it is, okay, how, how does somebody act who, who believes that there's this interconnection and how do they respond to difficulties? And so, so I think that's how it has, has influenced me, but it, it was, um, it was an amazing experience, but it also, like, I didn't, I left there not knowing if I was going to continue to do the podcast. Um, I was uh, in talks with a publisher to write a book, and I came out of there, I was like, I don't want to do it, because I had been doing it because I wanted to be seen as an author, and that just, I no longer cared. And so, um, it, it wasn't without its 
uh, challenges. And, and I, I sometimes still think that it reduced my ambition in a way. Um, that is, I don't know, is neither good nor bad, but has, has implications. You know, I don't have the ambition of feeling like I have to prove myself. And that, that gave me a fair amount of energy. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of energy that can come out of that. That's gone. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm running off a different kind of fuel. Yeah. One conversation I had with a recent guest was about where you receive energy from. For some people, it is about looking at the people who criticize them, who write bad things about them and trying to prove those people wrong. Another group of people view it, try to like harness the love that they have for who yeah. they're trying to help. And I think both can get you yeah. to your desired outcome. But the question I always have is what is going to get you to your desired outcome with more joy? And yeah, go yeah, for it. Uh, Does anything ring? Yeah, up? totally. Um, you know, I have a program called spiritual habits that I lead. And the second lesson is about self-compassion. We talked about this a little bit earlier. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about, in there is that many of us, it, when I say, you know, being nice to ourselves, being kinder to ourselves, um, works better than being really self-critical and really hard on ourselves. Inevitably, there are people who go, no, not me, right? No, I work better by like just kicking my ass, you know? And I want to be clear, self-compassion is not about just not being accountable. But what I've found is that I do think that fuel of I don't like myself and I'm going to prove everybody wrong, you know, or I'm going to prove my dad wrong or my mom wrong. The, the, that fuel is a type of fuel that drives us, but I think it's kind of a dirty fuel. Yeah. And I think that over the years, it eventually clogs the engine. So what I see is a lot of people my age who that really worked for them for a while. And now it just doesn't. They're just, there's nothing, there's, they're burnt out, you know, they're, and, and it seems that the path for them, the next transformation is to go from uh, nearly hating themselves into achievement into, you know, a different way of engaging with the world. There's a price to pay for using that type of fuel. Yeah. Is, is the, is what yep. I'm hearing from what you're talking about. I think so. Yeah. And, and I think there are lots of, you know, I think there's a million shades of gray in between, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, I would be, I, I don't want to set myself up and, and paint myself as like this angelic person who doesn't have any ego. Like, you know, I do this work, you know, and, and, you know, there's always multiple motivations going on, right? Like one is I deeply want to help people. I love doing it. You know, I love these kind of conversations. I love coaching people and seeing them change. Um, I love the spiritual habits program. So there's a love that drives it. And it's how I make a living and everybody wants to make a living, right? You, you know, we want to do well. And, you know, there is a there is way less than there used to be, but there is an element of being seen in it. You know, there's... A, yeah. a, and so for me, I'm I'm always trying to notice the different motivations and realign to the ones that feel cleaner, better, more aligned with my values. So, you know, 
trying to do the podcast, you know, do the podcast because I know it really helps people and I love doing it. You know, that's a better motivation for me at this stage in my life than I'm going to catch that damn Tim Ferriss, right? Like, it's just a different thing. It's a different thing. You know, 20 yeah. years ago, I might have had that, like, you know, nobody's going to beat me, you know? Yeah. I just don't have as much of that anymore. And some of that is, I think, spiritual development and a variety of things. And I often wonder how much of it is also, you know, we, we change as we age. And I think as we get older, we have the opportunity to become wiser. Now, obviously, not everybody who gets older becomes wiser. There, we see lots of people that aren't. But a lot of years does give you more and more opportunity to do it. So, you know, I, I've, had, I've just had a lot more opportunity to become wise than, say, you have, just by sheer number of days to practice it, you know? Absolutely. doesn't mean I'm wiser than you, It just, but, but you get my point. Yeah, absolutely. How Do you think you were brought into this life with a specific purpose? No, I don't really. That, that doesn't align with my, um, my belief system. Now, again, I will caveat that to say, like, I, I don't really know. Who knows, you know, <laughs> yeah. why, why we're totally. here. Um, that said, I do think that based on the way I was, you know, my genetic makeup and my talents and the ways, the things that happened to me and the influences that I had and the experiences I had and the books I read and the people I talked to, that I was shaped in a certain way. And I do believe that there are certain types of work that are much more aligned with that shape. Mm -hmm. So you could say in a way the shape of me fits better in certain ways or other, but I don't think I was brought into the world with the purpose to do this. That's just not my, this is not the way I orient. And the way you orient, what do you think happens after we die? I have no idea. I really don't. And I don't spend much time thinking about it, honestly. Um, apparently the Buddha didn't either, you know, depending on different, you know, interpretations. You know, it's one of the things he often said, like, You'll break your brain. This is not a direct quote. Uh, <laughs> you'll break your brain. I think he called them the unknowables. Like you, you just, yeah. you're not going to know, you know. Um, yeah. What I do know is that those experiences that I've had, like that one that I had, uh, you know, and I, I've had many others that are in that vein, maybe not quite as extreme. That one sort of stands out. Those experiences have sort of given me a sense of... Um, I don't know, a, a sense of peace that like whatever happens afterwards just isn't just isn't that important. You know, it's not um, I mean, if I had to if I had to if I had to say I would, you know, if I had to make a bet, I would bet that I die. And, you know, that the form of consciousness that has taken form as Eric is gone, but consciousness is not gone and, and humans are not gone. And parts of me live on in people in ways for sure, you know, like my son and all the people. And so there's some part of me that, that, that carries on in that way. Um, but for all I know, I could be sitting at the right hand of God here, you know, and, 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 you know, looking down on Danny and going like, I hope he does well, you know, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> What in particular do you think drew you to Buddhism or your Zen practice in particular? It made the most sense to me. You know, right out of the gate, if you look at Buddhism, the very first thing is the first noble truth. Life contains a lot of suffering. 
And I went, finally, somebody's telling the truth. <laughs> like, okay, now, now that, that I can believe in, right? That yeah. matches my experience of the world. So right out of the gate, I can sort of, you know, and then the, the second noble truth says like, and part of the reason that we suffer is because we just, we always want something to be different than the way it is. And I went, that makes perfect sense to me too. Like, so there were just a lot of things about it that really I went, uh, the, that, that, that seems to make sense to me. Whereas when I looked at say, um, you know, certain forms of Christianity, I went, that, that doesn't make sense to me, me personally. Now I have some friends who are Christians and my view of the world makes no sense to them you know and so and they they live beautiful and wonderful lives and so i don't think that my view is better my view works for me so um but buddhism just made sense to me and i also loved you know one of the things that that the buddha talked about was don't take what i'm saying on faith take what i'm saying and go try it in your life and if it works you'll know it to be true and i loved that too because anybody who's convinced they know the truth there i don't i instantly want to tell them why they're wrong even if i agree with them <laughs> even if i agree with them like yeah. if you start arguing for why buddhism is unequivocally right i would start arguing with you probably because i'd be like you don't know that danny so so there was a natural skepticism built right into the heart of buddhism i felt like that really spoke to me at least the type of buddhism that was presented to me as a westerner now when we say buddhism it's sort of like it, it means so many different things depending on the tradition the culture all that there's a particular westernized version of it that that you know we've been presented that made sense to me and maybe that's because i'm a i'm a westerner right so but yeah when i just take your experience in for the last hour and in doing research for this i get such a deep sense of thoughtfulness of what you say and how you approach the world like the number one thing that sticks out to me is thoughtfulness do you agree with that assessment? And if you do, what do you think has led to that thoughtfulness to occur? I, I would tend to agree. I try and be thoughtful. Or actually, I don't even try that hard. It's, it seems to be sort of a naturally evolving quality. Um, what, what has led to that? The flip answer would be when you've been as wrong as I have so many times in life, you actually start to go, well, hold on a second. Let me think before I talk. Um, I think there's an element of that in it. Um, I think I have a tendency to, for for whatever reason, think. I try and think about what I'm being told and think about how does it apply? And I think we're, the other thing I think is you work in the addiction world and you work in, you know, I, I've had depression. I, I know a lot of people who've had depression. After a while, you start to realize that easy answers don't work. Hmm. That, that like someone will be like, well, you know, if you just, um, you know, uh, eat a probiotic, you know, probiotic diet, your depression will go away. And you're like, well, maybe, but 
there's a ton of people that doesn't, you know, so you start to see that like, there's a whole lot of complexity here. And so that's what I see when I look at the world is I see like things are complex. There are not easy answers. And so starting from that point then causes thoughtfulness, I think, because you go, okay, wait, all right, that sounds really good. And I wish it was that simple. I really do. I mean, I, I, I would love some simple answers, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't mean that everything has to be unnecessarily complex. Um, but, but I, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a, a natural attribute that comes from really looking at the world and really trying to make change in the world. I think if you really are working to make change in the world, not just talking about change, but actually in the trenches trying to make change, you start to go, geez, you know, that sounds really good when you, you know, when you read it in a book or when somebody gets on stage and speaks it or you hear it in a podcast, it all sounds good and easy. But now I'm trying it and I go, wait, what do I, you know, okay, so I just, I'm supposed to allow my thoughts to come, but what do I do with a thought that tells me that, you know, I hate my mom. Do I let that one come? Do I let that one go? You know, you start to realize like there's real complexity in this stuff. And so I think that's what causes for me thoughtfulness. How has interacting with so many of the people you've studied in books and on stages and you're now talking to them face to face or mm -hmm. over the phone for an hour at a time. How has that changed your perception of the people themselves and the material that you're reading or listening to? I certainly think that I have a different perspective on people that many of us might look up to and go, oh, wow, that's like, that's an incredible person, right? And I think I have a much better sense of like, their work might be incredible. They may have a mind that was able to articulate something in a really incredible way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their life is easy. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're, they're nice to the people around them. It doesn't necessarily mean... Um, so I think those people are... They, they feel a lot more like, like they're not a separate, you know... There, 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 there's not a lot of hero worship left. Let's put it that way, right? Like I had Jack Cornfield on the show recently. Jack Cornfield has been a guy who's influenced me since 1994, probably, right? So what is that? I don't know how many years that is. That's a lot of years. I probably have more Jack Cornfield in my ears than maybe any other human being, right? Five years ago, no, well, yeah, maybe five years ago, but certainly nine years ago before I started the podcast, if you'd let me get in front of Jack Cornfield, I probably would have been somewhat starstruck. You know, I, I didn't have that feeling. Now, I had a deep sense of reverence for the man, right? I have a deep love and gratitude for the man, but I don't look at him as like some separate creature. You know, I look at him and I go, and Jack, don't take anything personal here, but like, oh yeah, well, he had a divorce not that long ago. So he's not the Buddha. Would the Buddha have gotten divorced? Maybe. You know, Adi Ashanti, Adi Ashanti said to me once, if you want a, if you want a perfect spiritual teacher, find a dead one, right? Like, um, <laughs> I think the other thing that really came, th that, that has happened 
with those people, and I think this is a, actually a very instructive and important lesson for all of us, is that let's say I'm talking to somebody and they've written five New York Times bestsellers, and we're all like, oh my God, it's, you know, <laughs> Seth Godin. It doesn't matter. Pick your, pick your person. That person, when they sit down to write their next book, they are struggling. They doubt that they can do it. It's hard to do. They write stuff that they think is crap. They, you know, we, we seem to think that for these people it's easy or once you do it, it's always easy, but it's still really hard. And I think that's really important to know because we have a tendency to go, oh, it feels really hard, so I must not be able to do it. And the lesson I've gotten from all these people is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I started my next book and I didn't, I, I really honestly, Eric, there were points I thought I couldn't do it. I thought, I, I'm done, you know? And we can look at them and be like, but you wrote four before, like, of course you can do it. But in their mind, they're like, well, you wrote four before, but you get, the game's up. And I've seen the same thing in myself. Like, you know, if I'm giving a public talk or I'm creating a new piece of curriculum for, for students or whatever, in the middle of it, I deeply am like, I, I, I can't do it. I, I've done it before, but I, I got nothing. And now there is something to be said for, for talking to ourselves and going, okay, you have done it before, Eric, relax, take a deep breath. Like, you know, for me, what's helpful is I know, like, it always feels this way. And so that's what's helpful from, from people like that. But I would say the biggest thing has been realizing that they're normal people. They might have great minds. They might have great ability to articulate things. That doesn't necessarily mean that that, that all that insight is operable in their lives all the time. And, um, and they struggle just like we do. They have ordinary, they have good days and bad days, just like all of us. Yeah. On that topic of, of masters and speaking of people who have mastered things, what do you feel like you've mastered and what do you feel like you're still learning? I don't feel like I've mastered anything. I mean, I really don't feel like I've, I'm a master of, of anything. Um, so I feel, you know, I think I'm still learning, you know, I, I'm capable of still learning in any area I'm working in. That doesn't mean I am actively learning in all those areas, but I'm certainly, there is more to learn, you know, and, and, for for whatever reason, and maybe that is some degree of wisdom as you realize, like, no matter how much you learn, there tends to be more to learn. You know, it's like playing guitar. Like, you know, I play guitar and I'm, a, I'm an okay guitar player, but like, I could continue to improve at a rapid rate every day the rest of my life. And there would still be room to grow there. And I think I think everything is that way. You know, everything has, you know... I mean, maybe not tic-tac-toe, right? But, but anything of value has kind of immeasurable depth to it, which is kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. I don't know. From, from my perspective, I consider you a master at podcasting. The way you mm -hmm. ask questions, the, the thoughtfulness that you take to conversations. But I could understand from your perspective, you being, well, I've only been doing it for X years. I could be doing it for 10 more years and I'd still have things to learn about. Yeah, it's less, you know, it's le that's an art that, you know, when you get into something that I would say at a certain point becomes an art, right? There is no end of your ability to 
interact with it in different ways, you know? Um, so, so do I, you know, you know, uh, 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 the, the question that's most alive for me these days with this stuff is we're coming up on episode number 500. How does it remain fresh and alive? You know, how do you approach something when you've read the same thing in 55 other books? Where, you know, what do you do when there's not a lot of novelty there? What, you know, and so I, I don't know the answer to those questions, right? And I'm not saying that this is, st- that it's become stale to me, but I'd be lying if I didn't say there are some days that feel stale. You know, 500 episodes, eight years is a long time. You know, there are times I'm like, I want to, I'm going to go do a show on real estate. Like, let me, give me something brand new, right? Um, and yet, so, so I think that's an example of, you know, how do you, how do I connect with the material on a, on a deeper, you know, on a deeper and different level? You know, how do I, mm. so, so I think there's all, there's, there's always learning and, 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 and changing and, you know, um, you know, Van Gogh, clearly, if you'd asked him, would say he was no master at painting. He hadn't mastered it. You know, I, I, mm. I doubt Beethoven or Mozart would think they had mastered the symphony, right? They, now, please, I, that, I'm not trying to compare myself to, to Van Gogh, Mozart, and Beethoven. What I'm trying to say is even if you take people who are way out there with their greatness, you would yeah. look at that. If you ask them, they'd go, yeah, still learning, still, you know, or at least still like there's this little area over here that I'm, you know, trying to figure out. I love it. A constant lifelong approach to learning, I think, is a, a beautiful place to come to a close where can we send people to connect with you further, Eric? Yeah, oneyoufeed.net. That's O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. And probably the best thing to do is just get, you know, go there and get on the mailing list. We've got a meditation guide. And from there you get episode, you get updates on all the episodes and all the programs and all kinds of stuff. So that's probably the best bet. Amazing. Well, from having this conversation, I feel a real sense of peace and calmness and <laughs> I'm just grateful for you for for spending the time with me here today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Danny. I really appreciated this. And uh, you may feel like you're early at it, but you've got got some skills for sure. Thank you. That was was well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. 